Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And first up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs from around the world. And taking a look is the order of the day, because this week researchers in America have come up with a clever way to take some of the chance out of one of the common, most commonly carried out surgical procedures worldwide, and that's cataract surgery. About one person in three in the developed world would end up at some point in their life needing cataract surgery. And what it involves is replacing a lens which is in the front of the eye, just behind the cornea, which has become fogged, usually by age, but it's also sometimes triggered by various diseases and also certain drugs that can make this happen. It's a very safe procedure, but unfortunately there is one aspect of it which is a bit tricky and entirely depends on the skill of the surgeon and involves some guesswork on the part of the surgeon too, and that's the part of the operation called capsulorexis. Now what you do when you're doing a cataract procedure is that the ophthalmic surgeon goes into the front of the eye and just behind the cornea is a bag, which is the capsular membrane. And this is what contains the lens that needs to be removed because it's become diseased. And in order to remove that lens, what the surgeon has to do is to make a circular hole of the right size in the front surface of that membrane. This is the capsulorexis procedure. And the way in which it's done, and it's incredibly fiddly, is that you take a needle and make lots of little punctures in the bag in a circular shape and then get the front off of the bag. And you need a circle because the circle has no edges and edges would otherwise concentrate force and that would make a weak spot. It's similar to the reason that aeroplanes have round windows to keep the airframe strong. Now, where you make this capsulorexis, how you make it, how big you make it, is all down to guesswork on the part of the surgeon and it's therefore the chanciest and therefore the most risky aspect of the procedure. But what a group of researchers at Stanford University, and this is Daniel Palanka and his colleagues, have published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week, is a new technique involving a laser that does this for you. Now, their technique, which they developed initially using pig's eyes, then they tested it on rabbits, and then ultimately trialled it on humans, involves making very tiny blasts with a laser, having developed a high-profile scan of the front of the eye, and what these laser blasts do is they go straight through the cornea harmlessly and they then cut a perfect, nice, round circle in this capsular membrane just, to, just the right shape for what you'd need to get the lens out. And then another further step is that they go inside and they also break up the lens using the laser. And this means the ophthalmic surgeon can go in, just remove the front off of that capsular membrane, use ultrasound to finally break up the lens, but much less invasively than you would have to if you hadn't done it with the laser. You then slip in the prosthesis and the person's cataract has been done. In the trial they did, which involved 50 patients, 30 of whom it was uh, a, a double trial, what I mean by that is, and thankfully not a blind trial actually, what that means is that they did one eye with the standard surgical procedure and the other eye with the new laser technique, they found that the outcomes were equivalently good in both cases, so the laser wasn't doing it any worse than the standard surgical technique. Uh, the cuts that were made were 50 times more precise with the laser. Patients who had the laser technique had much less swelling of the eye after the procedure, and there was a small, it wasn't statistically significant, but there was a small improvement in their visual acuity, so they were seeing better afterwards. So the researchers now say... Time to take this forward and do a much bigger study with more people in order to determine whether or not these laser techniques can make a really valuable contribution to cataract surgery. Myself, I think they, on the basis of this evidence, will. Sarah? 
That's really interesting. I mean, my, my grandma had that operation and I think anything that makes a sort of a really commonly used operation like that better is, is only a good thing. Well, I'm sure a lot of us uh, like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I like a nice glass of wine at the end of the day. Um, but for around 500 million people in the world, that's actually not so much fun as they have an allergy to wine. It's, it's apparently a bit like having a hay fever attack. You get itchy eyes and sneezing. But now a group from the University of Southern Denmark, publishing in the Journal of Proteome Research, have found out exactly what it is in the wine that makes these people react to it. It's a type of molecule called a glycoprotein, which is also what causes other allergic reactions like those to pollen and dust mites. These are molecules made up of sugar and protein molecules joined together, and they are really important to life. They're found in our cell membranes, some important hormones are glycoproteins, and they also play a key role in immune response. The kind of glycoproteins on the outside of an invading pathogen, like a bacterium, for example, help the immune system to identify it. So the team, led by Giuseppe Palmisano, tested an Italian Chardonnay using a mass spectrometer to see if there were glycoproteins present that might be causing these reactions. They identified 28 different glycoproteins in the wine, contributed both by the grapes and by the yeast used to make the wine. Many of the glycoproteins from the grapes were very similar in structure to ones known from other plants and fruit that are known to cause these allergic reactions. And it's the structure of the glycoprotein that's really important in it being an allergen or not. So are they suggesting that the way forward is to now come up with a hypoallergenic wine that lacks those glycoproteins so that people who do, unfortunately, half a billion of them, that's a lot, have this rather unfortunate allergy could be helped? Well, I, I think that is the kind of the, what they suggested, but obviously it's going to be quite a fair way off because the the glycoproteins in the wine are actually really essential for the sort of the structure and the flavour. So you know, you take those out, the wine's going to be completely different. And also because there's so many of the glycoproteins present, it's kind of they're not sure which one it is. So that, yeah, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. But good news, potentially. I'll, I'll raise a glass to that, <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that. Right, well, also this week, uh, the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience took place in San Diego, California, nice sunny place. This is actually the largest meeting of neuroscientists from around the world who meet to discuss their latest research and the progress they're making in understanding how the brain works. And naked scientist Smita Mundasad was there for all the action, and she's with us now to tell us what she got up to. Hello, Smita. Hi, Chris. So the weather here decidedly worse than California then? Oh, it's so much nicer in California. So shame to be back, but what did you get up to? Well, with over 30,000 neuroscientists in attendance, this year's Society for Neuroscience conference in San Diego was a hotbed of new research and exciting ideas. One of the meeting's highlights was news that researchers have found a way for people to control computer curses with their thoughts alone. So, using MRI machines connected to computers, scientists from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine asked 14 participants to think alternatively of two thoughts. One to think about playing tennis, and the other to imagine going from room to room in a familiar place. Analysing the brain activity from these two different scenarios, the researchers were able to show that the computers could distinguish two distinct patterns of brain activity for each thought. So, while still in the MRI scanner, the participants were asked to use these thoughts to control the movement of a computer cursor on a screen. This means that they had near-instant feedback of how well they could control their own thoughts. Lead author Dr Anna Rose Childress explains that this new approach could have major therapeutic implications, for example, in the treatment of addiction. Control of the screen cursor is a really good measure of how well a person can alternate their thoughts between tennis and room by room. 
The thoughts, of course, are completely arbitrary, but the act of controlling them and shifting them does require considerable attention and cognitive control. For our patients, when they are in the real world and maintaining cognitive control while they're driving their car down the street in a cocaine neighborhood, what they describe is that they will be intruded on by a brief vision of something cocaine-related, and they become derailed. So we're going to be able to model that with this task. We'll have people performing this task and be blipping in very brief cocaine images and be able to actually see the brain struggling to maintain control. So it's a very sensitive probe for disrupted cognitive control in pathological conditions such as addiction, for example. Anna Rose Childress from the University of Pennsylvania. In other news from the conference, again combining the disciplines of computing and neuroscience, researchers have found a novel way to make blind mice see. There's over 25 million people worldwide who suffer from degenerative diseases of the retina, often resulting in partial sight and blindness. Photoreceptors on the retina normally receive light, and then, with the help of retinal ganglion cells, this is converted into electrical impulses that can be understood by the brain. But with many retinal diseases, these photoreceptors stop working. Existing retinal prosthesis offer only very limited hope. Implanting electrodes into the retinal cells can allow people to make out spots of light or edges of objects, but very little in the way of real vision. But now, researchers at Weill Cornell Medical College at New York have taken a new approach. By analysing the light input and then the corresponding neural output of the healthy mice retinal cells, they were actually able to mimic the way the retina converts light into electrical signals. They've actually essentially cracked the neural code used by the brain. This code can then be used to produce a much sharper, clearer image in mouse models. The team hope to work with primates next and then humans very soon. Lead author Sheila Nirenberg explains how her research differs from other approaches. A common analogy is that the patient's eye is like a digital camera with damaged pixels. So, you know, the more pixels you replace, the, the better the picture you're going to get. And what our research shows is that there's another factor that's just as critical. Not only do you need to stimulate large numbers of cells, but you also have to stimulate them with the code that the eye is sending to the brain. And this is because the camera analogy really only holds in part. The eye does essentially take a picture, but then it goes much further. It processes the picture. It extracts information from it, and then it converts that information into a code that the brain can read. So to make an effective prosthetic device, you've really got to have both these functions, acquiring the picture and then converting the picture into a code that the, the brain can make use of. And I think we really have this now. We have these, both of these components. Sheila Nirenberg from Weill Cornell Medical College, New York. There was also good news for musicians at the Society for Neuroscience Conference. Benjamin Zendel of the University of Toronto presented research that suggests that musicians may actually be protected from some of the age-related changes in the auditory cortex of the brain. The researchers presented participants with complex sounds under two conditions, one where they were distracted by another activity and the other where they were focused on the sounds. During these experiments, the participants' brain activity was measured using EEG. The brain activity patterns of older people with musical training were very similar to that of young people during the attentive listening task. But older non-musicians showed typical age-related changes. Lead author Benjamin Zendel. A lot of research has shown that musicians do better on many hearing tasks. They have more acute hearing. Uh, they're better at making 
fine distinctions between sounds. And those are the exact same things that change with age. So as you get older, it's harder to make these fine distinctions between sound, and that contributes to difficulty understanding speech in noisy environments, like at a noisy restaurant or a noisy coffee shop. And so the really exciting part of this research is that older musicians seem to maintain some of those abilities and it's reflected in changes in the auditory cortex um, that there are changes in the functional components of the auditory cortex in older musicians that make their brains effectively look like that of the younger adults. So those piano lessons might have been a bit more valuable than I thought. That was Benjamin Zandel from the University of Toronto. Smita, thank you very much and I uh, hope you had a lovely time at the Society of Neuroscience meeting. Thank you, I did. Thank you for joining us. That was Smita Mundasad, who was reporting from the highlights of that meeting, which took place in San Diego earlier this week. Sarah? Yeah, well, I'd certainly much rather be in California at the moment, given how cold it's been recently. Well, I've got another really interesting story, and it's all about insects. This week, researchers in Japan have shown that the colour of pea aphids can be changed by a bacteria living inside them. And the reason this is such an interesting story is that colour is a really important aspect of an animal's life. It can influence predators, prey and potential mates as well. The team, led by Tsutomu Tsuchida, studied these pea aphids, which are from France, and are found in both red and green versions in the wild. Red ones tend to get eaten more by ladybirds, but the green ones tend to be attacked by parasitoid wasps. So when the team were looking at the wild populations, they noticed that some of the green aphids were having red offspring, but that the red offspring gradually became green as they aged. They wondered what might be causing the colour change, so they took a closer look at the aphids and they found several different types of endosymbiotic bacteria were living in them. And what are these endosymbionts? What does that term actually mean? Okay, so an endosymbiont is an organism that lives inside another organism, but the interaction between them benefits both of the parties. And it has to, really, otherwise it would be considered to be a sort of a parasite or an infection. And one obvious example would be corals. They have a tiny little algae living within their cells that photosynthesize. So the corals gain energy from the symbionts and the algae have ready access to nutrients and safety from predators and things like that. So to find out if the endosymbiotic bacteria and the aphids were involved in the colour changing, the team treated groups of aphids with antibiotics to knock out some of the bacteria. And in a second experiment, they injected uninfected aphids with hemolymph, which is essentially like the blood, from infected aphids. They found that one of the groups of bacteria called Rickettsiella was responsible for the colour change. When the other bacteria were killed off using the antibiotics, the aphid's colour still changed if Rickettsiella was present. And when it was injected into uninfected red aphids, it caused their offspring to become green as they aged. So when the red aphids produced their sex cells, the bacteria hitched a ride in those cells and were then present in the offspring, making them change colour. The group suggested, possibly, that this colour change may protect them from predation by ladybirds, but that also Rickettsiella is usually found with two other symbiont infections that help protect against the parasitoid wasps, so that helps to offset the danger of being green. So it's, it's a really good example of some of the complex relationships that there are between insects and bacteria. These ones actually convey an advantage to them, but there are some quite strange infections like Wolbachia, which can cause sex changes and it can kill off all the males in a brood of insects. And it's estimated to infect something like 70% of all insect species, which is quite amazing. 
It is amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Well, here's another interesting item, and it's to do with the placenta, because scientists have solved a long-standing mystery which relates to the structure of the placenta, which is, of course, the organ that the baby makes that connects it to its mother as a kind of lifeline during an embryonic development. But despite the fact that this placenta, which does the same job for every, every animal that has one, it feeds a baby, it, it's amazing that if you look at different species, you see totally different structures of placenta. So why should this be? Well, for 100 years, no one knew the answer, but now there's a paper that's come out this week in the journal American Naturalist. It's by two researchers at Durham University, Robert Barton and Isabella Capellini, and they think they've got the answer. They looked at 109 different mammalian species, and they studied the size of those animals, the gestation of those animals, and then the placenta size and structure in those animals. And a really interesting trend emerged when they did this, because what they find is that some animals, like humans, have very simple structures to their placenta and very long gestational periods. The baby takes a long time to develop. Whilst other animals, if you take, say, a leopard, for an example, or a mouse, they have very complicated placental structures, what they call labyrinthine placenta. These are very highly folded placenta, which brings the placenta into very close contact with the maternal bloodstream. And those animals, predictably, have a very short gestation. So what they think is going on is that this enhanced complexity of the structure of the placenta means that it's much easier for nutrients to get out of the mother and into the baby, so the baby grows a lot faster in those species. Animals that need to have very big babies, and the babies need to do a lot of developing, though, if they were to grow very rapidly, the mother would be robbed of too many nutrients and resources too quickly, and that could compromise the health of the mother. So from an evolutionary perspective, they're arguing what happens is that the placenta instead becomes less complicated, therefore less effective at robbing nutrients from the mother, and therefore the baby grows more slowly, but in the end still gets to be big. So a mystery that's been 100 years in the making, or gestating even, finally been solved. If you'd like to read up a bit more about anything we've covered this week, and also the references, and there'll be transcripts too for all of those news stories, uh, you can find them on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.